worshiping with us. Uh, I'd love to, Gray and I would love to uh, meet you after the service. And uh, please come up to us and we'd love to get to know you and, uh, and, and uh, answer any questions you might have about the church or just talk in general. Even if you have to have a question about the church, we'd still love to meet you afterwards. A few announcements before we start. Um, the, uh, mem- just, just two of them, actually. The membership class. Uh, we're going to have our next membership class, which is on August 13th, August 20th, and August 27th. That's all on Sundays. So what's going to happen is on August 13th, 20th, and 27th, which is Sunday, um, after the worship service, we're going to have food provided for those who've signed up. And we're just going to move to this section here after the service is done. And Gray and I will, will teach about Covenant City Church and about what we believe, about our leadership, about our church structure, uh, um, uh, anything else that you may want to know, our mission, our vision. Uh, so if you are interested to know more about the church and why does the Bible call us to be members of a church and not just hop around in different churches, if you want to know where, where we find that in the Bible, um, even just to get to know that more, uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, please come and join us. It doesn't mean that you're committing to the church. It just means that you want to get to know more uh, about the church or about these other things. So, uh, uh, and if you want to be part of it, there's a sign-up sheet up front. Just put your name down, and um, we'd love to have you and enjoy free lunch with you. Um, another thing is the community groups are starting up today. Uh, not, not today, this week. I'm sorry. Uh, today will be weird. Happens on Thursdays. Uh, the two groups that meet, one is in Northwest, uh, which now will meet in... Gray's apartment, I believe, uh, and we'll, we'll give you the details and the exact address and the time uh, if you also sign up up front uh, on the small blue little connect cards. Just put your name and email and number there. We'll, we'll let you know, but for now, just know there's one in North, there's one in West Jakarta, there's one in Central Jakarta uh, in Ferde apartment, um, and there's a married couples community group that now will meet once a month. So if you're married and you want to join uh, the community group, we'll be meeting once a month. Uh, just come up to me afterwards, and I'll include you in the WhatsApp group for the married couples uh, group. Uh, those meet every Tuesday usually, but we can, we can set it up accordingly uh, if we need to. All right, membership class, August 13th, 20th, 27th. Community group starting back up, and those are the only two things uh, that I want, to, I want to point out today. So I will invite Emily up for our sermon scripture reading. Our sermon today will be taken from John chapter 5, verse 25 until 47. This is the word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. 
but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he, sent, he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is that they bear witness about me. Yet you refuse me, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This says the Lord. Amen. Thank you so much, Emily. Please stay with me in John chapter 5. We're continuing our series today in the Gospel of John. Um, even though our reading was from verses 25 to 47, we're going to be covering primarily verses 30 to 47. And as we enter into this passage, I need us to remember the context. Remember, we're going through the Gospel of John, and at Covenant City Church, we do go through a series through a particular book of the Bible, and we go through it, hopefully, uh, verse by verse. And John chapter 5, all the way from verse 19 to verse 47, we need to remember, is one long response by Jesus to the Jews who are trying to kill him in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. Remember the context there. Verses 1 to 18, Jesus had healed a paralytic man. And, and this paralytic man, even though he was healed by Jesus, discovered this miracle by Jesus, ended up still reporting Jesus to the authorities. Even though he has received this divine miracle right before him, he still blamed Jesus to the authorities. When, when the Jews were trying to persecute Jesus, they came to Jesus because of this. Jesus gave them this speech from verses 19 to 47, a 28-verse a, a, a speech, right, just to confront them. And Jesus talks this way, especially in the Gospel of John. You're going to see this prolonged speech just by him. You see it here in John chapter 5, really his first major long speech. You're going to see it again later in John chapter 6. He has another speech later in John chapter 8. And in chapters 14 to 16, he has a three-chapter speech. And so the Gospel of John is centered around these encounters and Jesus responding in these almost lecture type of material, right? And so we need to read this whole uh, text together. They're one long passage in response to the Jews who are trying to kill him. And it's really insightful here because we get a little insight on how would Jesus respond to people who misread the Old Testament? How would Jesus respond to people who are trying to persecute him? How would Jesus respond to people who misunderstand his work and the miracles that he's doing? And so we need to read this passage and dive into it in light of what has happened. Jews are trying to kill him. He just did a miracle. But even despite the miracle, this paralytic man did not believe him. And we're going to learn three things here from this passage. The first thing we're going to learn today is who Jesus is. The second thing we're going to learn is how we know who Jesus is. 
And the third thing we're going to learn is why we need to know who Jesus is. So who is Jesus, how we come to know who Jesus is, and why we need to know who Jesus is. And it's almost like a college paper, right? We're asking three basic questions. Who, how, and why? And this passage is, I think, it gets to the basic nitty-gritty, the backbone of what Christianity stands for, the basics and the foundations of our faith. And as we dive into this passage, let's begin with a word of prayer again. Father, we thank you so much for your holy word. It is incredible, Lord God, that though we have not seen your form, though we have never heard your voice, yet you have spoken through the prophets, through Moses, and that's finally encapsulated written in the Word of God, your scriptures. We thank you, Lord God, for this incredible privilege. We thank you, Lord God, that you have come and you have given us life and that all of the stories in the Bible, all of these passages that we read, Father, are testifying to your Son, who is life himself. He came not because we deserved it, but he came, Father, because we know we need it. We need you to climb on a cross to die the death that we should have died and to live the life that we should have lived so that one day, Father, we might rise with him. So, Father, as we go through this passage, help us become attentive, help us become disciplined in our hearing, and help us become more like you, Father, because we've been redeemed from the sins of our past. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember, Jesus is continuing here um, a, a... a, a, a lecture or a speech that he's giving to the, to the Jews who are trying to persecute him. And friends, it's incredible to me that he, he doesn't go to the urgency of the situation. You know, if someone was trying to stop you and you were trying to heal a paralytic man and someone says, you're breaking the law, you might have gone through several different explanations. You might have said, why would you stop me from healing this person? He's obviously sick. This is an urgent situation. He obviously can't walk. He's desperate. Why would you stop me from healing this man? He didn't go there. He didn't go to the urgency of the situation. Neither did he try to debate the Pharisees or the Jews who are trying to kill him about the nitty-gritty of the law, the details of the law, trying to find maybe a legal loophole for him to go through. Instead, in verses 19 and 47, what I preached about, uh, that is a response to what I preached about two weeks ago and what Tazar covered last week, Jesus started talking about himself, and he started talking about God. In fact, scholars call this passage, verses 19 to 47, what is called a Trinitarian discourse. And it's just a fancy way of saying that this is a talk about the Trinity, talk about God in himself, talk about the relationship between the Father and the Son, talk about the identity of Jesus Christ, talk about the work that he's come to do, talking about who he is and getting it rightly and accurately being precise about how we talk about God. So notice, the first thing Jesus does, the first thing Jesus says to people who are trying to kill him is what? He gives them a theological lecture. Think about that. People are trying to kill you. People thought that you were, you were breaking the law because you healed a paralytic man. And Jesus doesn't talk about the ethics of the situation. Jesus doesn't talk about the urgency of the situation. Jesus doesn't talk about the nitty-gritty of the law. The first thing he goes is what? Who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? And, And by the way, if Jesus began talking about the urgency of the situation, it wouldn't have worked. Why? 
because there were a lot of sick people, remember, around that pool in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. A lot of sick people were gathered around that pool, and Jesus chose only one person to heal. He didn't just heal everyone because he thought that they were all sick. He just chose one person because, remember, he's free and he's sovereign. He could do whatever he pleases. So it was, an ob it was obviously not about that. Instead, the first thing he says to people who are trying to kill him is, who do you think I am? That's the first question. What I do doesn't make sense to you because you have a wrong belief about me. What I do doesn't make sense to you because you believe the wrong things about me. And friends, what do you believe Christianity is? Do you believe Christianity is primarily a guideline? A better philosophy for your life? An ethic to make yourself a better person? Do you believe Christianity is primarily uh, about a teacher who tells you a way of life that you need to conform yourself to? If that's the way you were thinking about Christianity, that is entirely wrong. The first thing we need to know about Christianity is this. Who is Christ to you? Jesus is making this into a very personal question. And the Pharisees at this point could have been completely confounded. The Jews who are trying to kill him, the people in authority who are trying to kill him, trying to incriminate him for breaking the law, they would have been completely confounded. They could have said a lot of things, right? They could have said, why are you making this about you? We're just carrying out business as usual. We're just trying to carry out the law as we know it. We're trying, about, we're, trying to, we're, just, we're just trying to implement justice, right? Why are you making this about you? Why are you suddenly talking about your relationship with the Father? Why are you suddenly talking about how your Father approves of you? Why are you suddenly talking about your honor that you deserve and the judgment that you have that the Father approves of, that your judgment is always just? Why are you making this about you? It has nothing to do with what you are. It has everything to do with the law that you broke. But the first thing, again, Jesus goes through is this. Who do you think I am? You see, you don't believe in what I do because you thought I was a mere teacher. You don't believe in what I do. It doesn't make sense to you because you thought I was a mere miracle worker and I'm just here to heal some people. You didn't believe in what I do because you thought I was a mere prophet. I'm just here like any other prophet. No, you don't believe in what I do because you have mistaken my identity. I am Lord. Verse 23, right? He has the same honor as the Father. Verse 30, everything he does is reflective of the Father. Verse 44, his glory is completely from the Father. He is the perfect representation of God on earth. You see, if you are rejecting me, consider first why you're rejecting me. Who do you think I am? And if you really think this is just about a matter of the law, this is about me breaking some rule, this is about me uh, uh, and you carrying out justice as if it's not about a personal question that you need to ask yourself about who I am, then you've gotten all wrong. And what we need to understand, friends, is that our wrong behaviors, our inappropriate or our sinful behaviors, even relationships between us friends or, or among um, a person to another person, is often reflective of a false belief. A false practice often reflects a false belief. Think about it for, for a second, right? If, if you have a girlfriend or if you have a family member and you're impulsive and say, you know what, 
who are you texting? I need to check your phone. And you ask your spouse or you ask your husband or you ask you know, your, your mom or you ask your child, I need to see your phone. And you do this every 30 minutes. Let me check your phone. 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 Right? And then you know, your spouse gets really irritated by this and says, what's up with you? And maybe that other spouse who's really impulsive is going to say this, I don't know, I just have an erratic behavior, I just have a need to check your phone. You know, at that point, the spouse whose phone is being checked on every 15 minutes has the right to ask, no, this isn't just an erratic behavior that you have. This reveals you don't trust me. You believe I'm not a trustworthy person. Your weird behavior of impulsively needing to check my phone every 15 minutes reveals what? A belief about me. And what we need to talk about at this point is not your need to check phones, is what do you believe about me? Do you think I'm trustworthy? Can you trust me? Can you trust me? And you know, in this line of work that we do as we work for a church, I and Tazar, we read different books about different topics. So two weeks ago, I started reading a book called Hillbilly Elegy, which is about uh, people who grew up in rural America. And this week, I read a book about pornography. Not a porn book, a book about pornography. Just to be clear, just to be clear here, right? Very different things. Um, I read a book about pornography and the, the subtle effects that pornography has in culture, in individuals, in relationships, on all the myths that we believe about pornography. And as I read this book, it gave not only a lot of scientific findings and statistics and moral reasoning, it also gave a lot of heartbreaking testimonies from real people who's had struggles with pornography or, or husbands and wives whose spouses have troubles with pornography. And one of these heartbreaking testimonies is what? A particular husband is so addicted to pornography that he has to visit it once a day. He has to visit it once a day. And at that point, after two years into a marriage, his wife stopped him and asked him to either stop this or divorce. Stop what you're doing. Stop visiting these websites every night or we're going to get divorced. What could the husband do at that point? Several routes. He might say, well, this is perfectly normal. This, he might say, this is just a private behavior. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect how I feel about you, a wife. It's just a private thing that I do. You know, you, know, you like to um, check out bags at night. I like to check out these websites at night. Right? I don't know. Right? The husband could have tried to defend himself by saying, this is just a private practice. It doesn't affect me or my relationship with you. It doesn't affect how I view you as my spouse. But notice at that point, a retort that the wife might have. She can appropriately, and you could feel this too, she can appropriately say, no. Why? Because you, visiting these websites every day, reveals your belief about me. That you are more attracted to pixelated images on a screen than you are in an intimate relationship with me. That you believe that I'm not enough. That you believe that this is actually what you want and not me. You see, our wrong behavior oftentimes reflects not merely a private weird abnormality, but a belief about another person. Whether it be trust, whether it be addiction, it reveals other beliefs. And when these Pharisees, when these Jews were trying to incriminate against Jesus, trying to bring this charge against him, 
he makes it about himself and tells him, correct your doctrine. Correct your doctrine, O unbeliever. Don't talk to me as if I'm merely a good teacher. Don't talk to, to Jesus as if he's merely a philosopher to teach you a better way of life. Understand who I am. I am Lord. Everything I do perfectly represents the Father. That's the first thing he goes. And this has massive implications, and I won't camp here for too, too much longer. But, but notice this, friends. Notice this. We hear a lot of people say, it doesn't matter what your doctrine is as long as you love Jesus. The question is, which Jesus? The Jesus of your own making? The Jesus of the miracle worker? The Jesus who merely teaches people how to live better? You see, false doctrine isn't a mere academic error. False doctrine leads necessarily to false worship. If you don't get the object of worship right, if you don't get who Jesus is right, you're not worshiping the right Jesus. And if that's the case, friends, if you believe that Jesus is a mere miracle worker or a mere teacher of life, you're going to read your Bible. We are going to read our Bibles. And what are we going to find? We're going to find passages that won't make sense to you. Jesus is a mere teacher. Oh, suddenly he says things like, if you don't worship me, you won't be there at the final day. What kind of mere teacher says that about himself? If I came up to you today and I told you, I am the light and the life. If you don't believe in me, you will be standing under judgment. If I, if I stood up in front of you and I told you, you look for water elsewhere, you look for bread elsewhere, but let me tell you, I, have come I, I, I am the bread of life. I'm not just teaching you where to find water. I'm not just teaching you where to find bread. I'm telling you, this food that you eat, the water that you drink, point to something greater, an eternal thirst and eternal hunger that only I could fulfill. That's not going to make sense to you. If that's the Jesus you worship, the, the Jesus of a good teacher, a, a philosopher, you're going to come to the text and you're going to have serious, serious questions. And if you believe that Jesus is here to make your life, a, to give you a richer, wealthier life, this is the Jesus you believe, you're going to come to the Old Testament. And I know Jeremiah 21 and 11, which says, you know, I have great plans for you, plans to make you prosperous. If that's your only verse that you only know from the Old Testament, you're going to read about the Canaan conquest. God wiping out countries because of sin. And you're going to think, what kind of God is this? This isn't what I signed up for. Things don't make sense to us, not primarily because, friends, you have some kind of mere ethical problem with you. Things in the Bible don't make sense to us because we haven't asked the first question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he Lord who gets to determine everything and his judgment is just and you have to submit all of your rationality to his rationality? Or is he a mere help to you? Is he a prophet? First thing he goes is doctrine. That's the first point. Who is Jesus? Full representation of the Father. He is Lord. That's the first question we need to ask, Francis. Christianity is about a person, a personal relationship with this person. Let's go to the second point. 
now that we know who Jesus is, right, he talks about all those things in verse 23, verse 30, verse 44. He is the perfect representation of God on earth. We come here in this passage from verse 33 onwards to how we know who Jesus is. How we know who Jesus is. First question is who, second question is how. Look at verse uh, 33. The first way we need to get to know who Jesus is is this. He says, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So notice the first way we get to get to know Jesus is who? Other teachers. John that he's talking about here is John the Baptist, not John, the apostle of John that wrote this book. So the first way Jesus is saying, how we get to know him, what are the witnesses that point to Jesus so that we might get to know him? That first way, that first means of knowing is through other teachers like, the, uh, John, like John the Baptist. And John was pointing to Jesus. And from understanding what he says about John, we, by analogy, understand how we should point to Christ too. Every Christian is a witness to Jesus Christ the way John is. And look at what he says. You sent to John... And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Notice what he says about the nature of teachers like John the Baptist who point to Jesus. Notice first, right, that witnesses and testimonials, teachers that teach the truth are what? They're pointing beyond themselves. They're not pointing at themselves. They're not saying, follow me. Only Jesus says, follow me, right? They're not saying, I am the way. They're saying, he is the way. They're not saying, that, I am the solution to your problems. They're not saying, I am the one that you need. They're saying, someone else is the one that you need. The nature of a witness in and of itself is that they point beyond themselves and not to themselves, right? And notice what he says here in verse 34. Here's the second thing we need to know. Not only that witnesses point beyond themselves, but that Jesus doesn't need them. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Notice what he says there. One of the first ways that we get to know who Jesus is, and you experience this too, is from who? Friends who are Christians. Friends who are Christians maybe have told you about Jesus, brought you to church, took you to lunch, took you to community groups, told you about Jesus Christ. But Jesus told, tells us here, first and foremost, that he actually doesn't need someone like John the Baptist. He doesn't need teachers of God's word. Why does he then use them? He uses them merely so that you might be safe, so that it be help to you so that it would be helpful so that you might believe in him. Not that he needs it, but he accommodates to our needs. And notice in this principle, the first way of knowing who Jesus is, teachers of God's word, is both a way of elevating the word of God and teachers of God's word, such that if you are a Christian, and especially if you're called to be a teacher of God's word, you need to take it seriously, point beyond yourselves and point to Jesus instead, but at the same time, you need to take yourself not too seriously and realize, ultimately, God is using you not because He needs you, 
God is using you not because he needs you. It's both an elevating principle and a relativizing principle. And oftentimes, you know, maybe some of you here have been brought to Christianity by a friend or a teacher that you really respect. Maybe some of you here can think about a particular person in your life who's been an incredible help to you so that you might know Jesus Christ. But as you sit here in the pew, maybe that friend is no longer with you. Maybe he or she has disappointed you, fallen away from the faith, no longer is a Christian. Maybe he or she has seriously failed as a moral human being. Maybe he or she has just completely failed as a Christian. And we might be sitting here thinking, how can I still be a Christian? If the friend that I had who pointed me first to Christ, who I respected so much, have fallen away, that means Christianity is just a lie. If we believe that, have we missed the witness and the one to whom that they're witnessing? Have we missed that? Have we missed the fact that Christianity is ultimately not about the Christians, ultimately not about the people who are up here worshiping and, and preaching the word of God to you? Have we missed that all of our best teachers point to something beyond themselves? And look at verse 35. That's why he says there, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. What is he trying to say? John the Baptist was witnessing to me, but you are more fixated upon John the Baptist and not me. You've missed who he's witnessing to, and you've missed the light with the lamp that points to the light. I remember um, a few years ago, um, Mars Hill Church. How many of you guys have heard of Mars Hill Church? Here, a few of you. Ministry of Mark Driscoll. Um, he was a, you know, a preacher, maybe influential to some of us today. But a few years ago, he was caught up in some scandal, and his church tore apart, and he moved away, and he stepped away from ministry for a while. And the internet world was just going crazy about him and how everyone was starting to doubt their faith because he grew this church and he had baptisms of about 20,000 people and he was, you know, as far as we can see, an orthodox theologian who taught the right things. But as you read the internet blogs that, that, that posted about this event, it's, it's clear that when people like that fall, people who've guided you in the faith, people start to, to doubt. Old, people start to doubt. Was my faith even real? I don't believe in Christianity anymore. If this is the kind of leaders that Christianity has, I don't want to sign up anymore. This is all fake to me. And in this passage, we find an encouragement. Don't miss the teacher for the one to whom that they point, which is Christ himself. Second thing we need to know is how we get to know him. Notice, not only do we get to know him through teachers, but he also we get to know him from verse 36. What? The works that Jesus has done. What are those works that Jesus has done? And the word works here doesn't refer merely to miracles. Uh, miracles in the Gospel of John is used, uh, the word for miracles in the Gospel of John is a sign. So works here doesn't merely point to miracles, but everything that the Jesus does. In other words, if you want to know who Jesus is, don't merely listen to the teachers. Also consider him. Consider the kind of person he is to consider the things that he's teaching, consider the things that he's done, consider everything that he represents, everything that his life stood for. Consider who he is. And if you are going to ask the question, 
prove to me from an argument that Christianity is true. Give me a watertight argument that Christianity is true. And again, if we ask this sort of question, we've once again missed the point. Christianity doesn't give you a watertight argument of why it's true. It gives you a watertight person. If you want to believe Christianity, don't consider it merely intellectually. Go to the Gospels and consider everything that Jesus has done. But greater still, the next verse, right? How do we know that Jesus really is who he is? How do we know? He says this, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. But you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they they bear witness about me. Jesus, in other words, provides three ways, three hows of how we get to know him. Teachers, the works of Jesus himself, and finally, the word of the Father in the Bible. And Jesus is here, I think, building up his argument. This is what philosophers call an a fortiori argument. And again, that's just a technical term. It's, it's an argument that each step builds upon the other argument, right? Um, you could think about trivial examples. You could think about major examples of this, right? The, the incredible thing about my mom, I am so impressed at her. The incredible thing about my mom is this. She's not only, you know, I'm impressed about her cooking, I'm impressed about her person, sure, but the, the one thing I'm most impressed about with my mom is her ability to haggle in the marketplace. Especially in like China or like Singapore, you go to the street market or even like, you know, in like Pasar um, Minggu. I would see her and she would go to these Pasar and she would use an a fortiori argument. She doesn't know it's an a fortiori argument, but she, she would argue in this sort of process. Like, you know, she would, maybe it's oranges. And the haggler, you know, the, the seller would say, oh, three oranges for 50,000. And my mom would say, no, 10 oranges for 75,000. And she's like, no, 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 eight oranges for, for 60,000. My mom was like, no, you know? <laughs> uh, and it just keeps going, it just keeps going. And then I, I noticed in the last step, in the last step, she would always say this, ma'am, this is my final offer. If, I, if you don't want this one, you're not gonna take any of my other offers. I'll give you 12 for 80,000. If you don't take this, the rest doesn't work. I'm gonna leave. And she just pretends to walk away, right? <laughs> you know, as all maybe Chinese mothers do. And um, I'm just absolutely impressed at her argument because she would, she, would, she would, you know, strategically talk about it from her last, she would, she would keep her last offer last and she would give little offers first and then go to the last offer and then pretend to walk away. That's an a fortiori argument, or, or maybe a more serious example, right? Let's take the spousal trust issues again, right? Let's say, you know, the spouse really is impulsive, checking on your phone, and then this irritated spouse finally says to this impulsive phone checker, hey, look, I've already given you my phone. You still don't believe me. I've given you keys to my house. You still don't believe me. I've given you access to my bank accounts. Wife, you have access to my bank accounts no matter how many times you have checked my phone, no matter how many times you've come home and I'm home. You're not gonna believe me. You see all my transactions. What more can you want? You see, you see the argument there? 
It's step by step, and the last step is always the strongest. And Jesus is saying this, all of these witnesses, the house of how we get to know him, what's the first step? I've given you John the Baptist. Here's a teacher that points to me. You've seen my works, how I've been working, the wedding at Cana, how I've, I've dialogued with Nicodemus, how I've, I've talked to the Samaritan woman maybe, they've heard about that, how I've been so gracious, you've seen the kind of person that I am. That's not gonna work. But finally, consider this, the word of the Father and what? The Bible. If you have this final thing, no matter how many works I do in front of you, no matter how many teachers I put to teach you, oh, unbeliever, you would not believe me. And notice here, the Father's voice, the Father's word is what? Jesus identifies it with the Bible. And in, in verse 37 to 39, is, is this what, what people call an accommodation principle? You know, God is spirit. You can't see him. You can't feel him. You can't touch him, right? You can't really hear him. So Jesus says, right, the Father who sent me born witness about me, but what? His voice you haven't heard. His form you haven't seen. So how do we know the Father's voice? How come he knows that the living word isn't abiding in them? Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures. It is they that witness about me. How do we get to know God's voice? How do you believe we get to know God's voice? What's the final sufficient authoritative means that we know God's voice? I love our call to worship. Turn your call to worship. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. Which is the, the second, uh, not, uh, not the Luke passage, just the one right below the Luke passage. All scripture, it's on this PowerPoint, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice what it says about the whole Bible. It's what? Breathed out by God. The Bible is the very word of God. And what is Jesus saying? You've heard the Father. How? You haven't seen him. You haven't physically heard him. How? You search the scriptures. You search the scriptures. That's how God reveals himself to you. you know, I wonder how many times you've maybe sat at home and you're confused about a particular issue or problem. Maybe you don't know what to do next in your career life. Maybe you're having a fight with your spouse or your kids or, or, or I don't know, you're, some problem that you're wrestling with. And you might have texted your friend in this way. If only God would just give me a sign. If only God would just speak to me right now. What does he want me to do? The irony of that question is, especially if your Bible is just two feet away from you. The answer to that question is this. God has spoken. Go pick it up. God has spoken. Go to the Bible. And notice Jesus' statements. He says, I've given you teachers. I've given you my works. You've considered me as a person. But ultimately, you have the Bible. You have the scriptures. How many times have we tried to flip that around? 
Have we flipped it around? Maybe you've been frustrated at Christianity, and maybe you've asked the question, all I have is the Bible. I need some works of God. I need better teachers at my church. I need better teachers in my community group. I've, all I have is the Bible. All I have is reading. How many times have you flipped it? How many times have we made the Bible the most insignificant way of knowing God and made other means, maybe, maybe a retreat at a mountaintop experience, or maybe it's another so-called prophet that, that wants to tell you your future or a private revelation to yourself. Well, how does Jesus see all of these things? He says what? If you don't go to my Bible, if you don't go to the scriptures, no matter how many miracles you see, as we saw with the paralytic man who didn't repent, right? No matter how many miracles you see, no matter how many amazing sermons you've heard, no matter how many great teachers you have, you won't believe. The Bible is sufficient. Why would you replace it with anything else? Why would you replace it with anything else? And notice he says, you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Again, friends, remember this. You could know the Bible without knowing God, but you can't know God without knowing the Bible. You could know the Bible without knowing God. You could read the Bible, in other words, and completely miss the point completely missed the point of all, all the Old Testament, completely missed the point of Jesus' parables, completely missed the point of the letters of Paul, completely missed the point of the letters of Peter and James. You could read the Bible and never come to know God. But make no mistake, you could not know God without at all knowing the Bible. You must come to know the Bible. You must. There is no other way for you to know God that is more sure more foundational, more clear. And, and I hope as we come to this text, again, this is such a foundational, basic uh, uh, tenet of Christianity, right? As you're informed about this, let that be your criterion. Let that be your standard. Your first question is not primarily whether the speaker is eloquent. Your first standard is not primarily whether there are miracles that take place. Your first standard can't be merely whether or not the smoke machine is up to your standard or your liking. Your first standard can be about how people move when people worship. Your first standard, first and foremost, is this. How valuable and how formative is the Bible in this church? How is the Bible being taught? How is the Bible being authoritative? How is the Bible being sufficient? And can we inculcate a kind of piety, a practice, a behavior, a model of Christian life that says, I don't need a personal experience from God. I just need His Word. It's enough for me. It's enough for me. You know, when I first became a Christian, on almost uh, every time I shared my faith, see, when the shift goes away from the Bible to myself, right, everyone, someone cries. Um, because it's not supposed to be, but this, I, I promise you it's, it's supporting the, what the Bible is saying. Um, anyway, but, but uh, the first, time, first few moments I became a Christian and I was sharing my faith in different sort of contexts, the first thing that I would go to is normally my personal story of conversion. You know, I was once not a Christian, I was terrible, then I became a Christian, it's good, and stuff like that. And 
the thing about my conversion story is it was a bit of a 180 degree turn such that people were not convinced that I was a Christian because it can't be that this gray guy. Like, promise. I know, I know him. He's, he can't be a Christian. But, but as I kept talking about my Word conversion about story, as I kept talking about my conversion story, I noticed more and more people came to me and said this. I've never had an experience like that. I grew up as a Christian. Jealous. I, I, <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit distracting. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. One that probably was Anyway, um, so, 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 so people would come up to me and say, I've never had an incredible emotional experience. I've never had a conversion experience. For the rest of my life, I've always thought I've known Jesus Christ. I never broke down in front of a church. I never went up an altar call. I never had my mountaintop retreat experience. I never met a prophet. I never did any of these sort of things, right? And then suddenly they start to doubt themselves. Am I really then a Christian? Because I never had these experiences. And since then, I've stopped emphasizing the personal experience. And just, friends, if you've been a Christian all your life, if you've been a Christian all your life and you've never had an emotional outburst, you've never had an amazing experience come to you, know this, you are not less loved by Christ. You are not less loved by Christ. You can be what, quote unquote, an ordinary believer. There is nothing that sets you apart as any less than anyone else who's a Christian. You are equally loved by God, whether or not you've had an amazing experience. And Jesus is saying this, what? No matter how many works you have, seen, no matter how many teachers you followed, believe in the scriptures. My last point, friends, I'm going to close with this. Why we need to know. We've considered who Jesus is. We've considered how we get to know him. Finally, why we need to know. He said before in verse 34 that you might be saved. He said before that you might have life. John 17, 3 says that here is eternal life, that you know the only Father and you know me whom he had sent. John 20, 31 says that these things John had written so that you might believe and have eternal life in Jesus Christ, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And look at how he closes this in verse 46 and 47. If you believe Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. But you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? How do you read your Old Testament? Do you read it as a pointer to something beyond itself, to someone who would die for you and give you life because you were not good? Or do you read it as a way of finding out inspiration for yourself, moral examples for your own life? How do you read the story of Abraham? Do you read the story of Abraham and come away saying, I gotta be like Abraham? Do you read the story of David and say, what a great king, I gotta be like David? Do you read the story of Moses and say, what amazing courage that Moses who is uneloquent, who had sl slowness of speech, who had a, a, a speech impediment, what amazing courage, I gotta be like Moses? 
Do you read the book of Jeremiah and say, what an amazing preacher, I've got to be like Jeremiah? Do you read, in other words, the Old Testament as a bunch of moral examples for you to follow, to become a better person? Or do you primarily, friends, read the Old Testament the way Jesus is telling you to read the Old Testament? It's about Him. Adam listened to the voice of the serpent instead of the voice of God and failed. Abraham was impatient against God and slept with Hagar when he should have waited for God's word so that he might have the promised son and failed. Moses, right before he entered the promised land, got angry at God and struck against a rock and failed. David, though he was a great king, committed adultery and he had failed. Moses, the greatest prophet. Abraham, the great patriarch. David, the greatest king. Who is the greatest prophet? Who is the greatest king? Who is the greatest patriarch? Jesus, who's come, and yet he's come, and you've rejected him. Friends, the only way we can come to Christianity, the only way we can come to Jesus, the Jesus who is Lord, is empty-handed, naked, and ashamed, knowing you've read the Old Testament, and if you realize in the Old Testament, only a mirror of yourself, a hallmark of your own failures. And at the end of the Old Testament, we are supposed to come away thinking, how then, Lord, who would be this great king that saves me from my sins? Who would this be? Believe in Christ who's come. Believe in Christ who's the perfect representation of the will of God. Believe in Christ that though he was God in the form of the Spirit, condescended, became a man, lived a perfect life, the life that you could not have fulfilled, climbed on a cross, and though you should have died, he died instead. Believe in Jesus Christ that you might have life. Rely on all the house of how you get to know him. Believe who he is. Let's close in prayer. Father, it's incredible that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of distress, in the midst of people who reject him, the darkness who tries to overcome the light, Father, you graciously and slowly through your Son speaks to us about who you are and gives us means and aids to get to know you so that we might have life and believe in the one who saved us from the dark. Lord, not because we're righteous, not because we are good, but because he is good. Not because we are the examples, Father, but because he is the one, Father, who was righteous in our place, substituted for us. We thank you for this word. Help us live in accordance with it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.